0: We're going down to the river. Last week, we dove into John 20, where the disciples were hiding behind closed doors after Jesus' crucifixion because of fear. But Jesus got up out of the tomb and walked through those doors and said, Peace be with you. Anybody glad today that he'll walk into your situation and say, Peace be with you? Then he tells them, So as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He revived their purpose and ministry, and now they will become an extension of him to show others the way to eternal life. And that's still what Christ is doing today. He saved and empowered us so that we can be a walking testimony of what he can do in our lives. It shows people, this is what I used to be, but when Christ stepped into my life, this is what he made me into. He saved us not to be safe. He didn't save us for us just to come sit here and enjoy good church. He saved us to spend us for his glory. J.C. Riley said the highest form of selfishness is for a man who's content to go to heaven alone. Soul winning isn't just about a program. It's about having a heartbeat for people. It's our functioning purpose as a spirit-filled believer. It's living a daily lifestyle that resembles Christ. We are meant to be salt. And light. Salt makes things better. Can anybody in Louisiana say amen? Light makes things brighter. Our lives should make people's day, days more radiant. And it should make them thirsty for more of what we have. The treasure's in the field, so I want to smell like the field. So I've got to leave the closed doors of excuses. I've got to go into the highways and the byways. And I've got to compel people to be a part of his kingdom. Not forcing Jesus on them. But living a life that leads people to him. Now watch this. Jesus showed up on this earth to do two things. Number one, to seek and to save those which are lost. And the second thing he showed up to do is to build his church. And these two things work together hand in hand, making the number one responsibility of the church evangelism. We're the only organization that exists for the benefit of non-believers and non-members. Evangelism is we connect sinners to the Lord, the Lord connects them to the church, we love them, grow them, disciple them, and then guess what? They go lead somebody to the Lord, the Lord connects them to the church, and the cycle continues. However, we can't accomplish this without the help of the Holy Spirit. No one can come unto the Father unless the Spirit draws them. And that's what makes the book of Acts so unique, because it links the Gospels with the Epistles. By recording the birth and early history of the church. The expression of God's kingdom for this age. Acts records what happened when the Holy Spirit's power infused the church. And it exploded with growth and authority. There's a difference between religious ritual and spiritual empowerment. And Jesus showed up to build a powerful church. Not a cold and complacent church. He told them don't leave that upper room until you've been filled with power from on high. And after being filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit, Simon Peter preached the gospel. And let's read what happened. Acts 2, verses 37 through 47. Now when the crowd heard this, they were cut in their heart, cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? We see what's going on. We we, we heard y'all speaking in tongues. Simon Peter delivered a message, and they said, What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That formula has not changed today. For the promise is for who? For you and your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other wonders he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were what? Baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. In one day, they had a 3,000 soul revival. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What is that teaching? Acts 2.38. The breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending The temple together. They received the Holy Spirit, but they still went to church or the temple day by day and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord did what? Added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As a result, the church exploded in growth and developed a tight-knit community that supported one another. So I want to preach to you for a little while today on this topic. Guess who's starting a church? Guess who's starting a church? Not a man-made church. A spirit-empowered church. Lay your Bibles down one more time. Lift your voice with me. God, I need your anointing today. Help me to deliver your word the way you want it to deliver, God. Help us to find out more about the church that you showed up to start. God, help me to preach with compassion, but with anointing as well and boldness, God. This is your word. This is your promise. Let us leave here different than what we showed up here, God. In the name that's above every other name, we ask it to be done. Somebody shout in Jesus' name. If you love him, give him one more hand clap of praise and you may be seated. I recently read a true story about a young boy named Gregory playing in the sand near the ocean where he spent long hours working meticulously on sandcastles. He was so creative that whole cities would appear beneath his hands, and those passing by were captivated by his ability to form the sand into masterpieces. But then one day, some bullies came along, kicked, stomped, and smashed all of Gregory's sandcastles. And as if one time wasn't enough, they started doing this every time he built a sandcastle. And now Gregory was a... He was in a conundrum because he knew he wasn't big enough to fight back. Gregory wasn't a real big guy. He wasn't strong. He, he didn't know the art of fighting. He didn't know what to do. So he didn't know what to do. He was in a conundrum. He, I can't fight back, so what do I do? He needed a solution. And finally, one day, he thought of one. He built his sand castles as before, but this time he placed them on top of a foundation of cinder blocks, rocks, and chunks of cement. And when the bullies came along, Gregory disappeared and watched from a safe distance as the bullies kicked at what they thought was only sand, only to be shocked that there was something sturdier beneath the surface. And the enemy thought that he was going to show up and kick our sandcastles down. But if it's founded on the church and the revelation of the name, he's going to be disappointed to find it's not just a sandcastle. It's been built upon the revelation of Jesus' name. Jesus said he was going to do the same thing. He knew that every person has an insatiable desire to rest securely in an unshakable life. We like to build our sandcastles around things we enjoy and we want them to last forever. But life hurls various hardships our way, leaving us insecure and fearful. Then we find ourselves scrambling to build security and remove every ounce of uncertainty only to discover that we don't have the power to do that. We don't have the resources and we don't have the knowledge. Moreover, the broken world we live in keeps hitting us with, in the face. Things fall apart. Nations rage, elected officials lie. Has anybody found that to be true? Pandemics strike, economics crash, bodies weaken. We get old. You're not gonna be young forever. Ooh boy, y'all didn't like that at all. Relationships split. Thieves do steal, and rust destroy. All the while, our enemy, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of the brethren, the God of this age, and the prince of the power of the air is working through people of disobedience, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone that he can devour. In other words, he's looking for sandcastles that have no foundation of the name. And he knows if there's no foundation sturdy enough to withstand his attacks, that the person that built that sound castle will be shaken to their core. So Jesus understood all of this and was tired of the enemy knocking down the temporary. So he set out to establish something that couldn't be shaken or destroyed. It would be his kingdom on earth. And this kingdom, this this, this thing that he would set up and establish would have authority over three powers and realms. kingdoms of men the curse of sin the demonic principalities and powers authority in the greek means permission of ability power the right to exercise that power do you remember when jesus told his disciples in luke 10 and 19 behold i give you the authority over all the power of the enemy not just some all the power and then luke 9, 1 through 2, Jesus called his disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure disease. Someone needs to be reminded today that there's more power for you than that's working against you. You've got more power available to you than the enemy could ever bring up against you. Can I give you some more scripture? Nothing shall by any means hurt you. No weapon formed against you is going to prosper. You, you will also declare a thing, and it shall be established. So some of us need to step up and stop just taking the attacks of the enemy and step up and say, I've got a word from the Lord. I've got authority to take dominion over you, your wiles, your methods. I'm not going to bow down. I'm not going to be whipped. I'm strong in the power of the Lord. You got to open your mouth and declare victory. It's obvious Jesus is establishing his kingdom. And we read about it in Matthew 16. Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, a city about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, at the base of the 10,000-foot the Mount Hermon. Out of, out, of this, out of this mountain flowed water that came from the mouth of the Jordan River. The Jews called it the living water, and it gushed forth and fed and refreshed the nation. Picture this. Jesus and his disciples were standing in front of the largest rock formation in israel with pagan statues and at least 14 pagan temples in the background it was a city dominated by immoral activities and pagan worship some believed that the this cave at Caesarea philippi created a gate to the underworld where fertility gods dwelt during the winter and then returned to the earth each spring they referred to this cave as the gates of hell It was at the foot of a cliff where spring water flowed directly from the cave's mouth. So before earthquakes destroyed the cave and modern engineering diverted the waters, there was a fast-moving stream created by 72 springs originating in this mountain. And the waters were so deep, the ancients were unable to plumb the depths and therefore considered it bottomless. And the early Canaanites, they went here to worship Baal. And you know what they would do? They would throw people into the gates of hell. To determine guilt or innocence. If they lived after being thrown in the gates of hell, they were innocent. But the water was so swift, it propelled the bodies over the rocks, guaranteeing death. Eventually, the worship of Baal was replaced with the worship of Greek fertility gods. And at the time of Jesus, the most important god in Caesarea Philippi was Pan. The Greek god of shepherds and the wild. Pan's legs and horns are like goats. Why his upper body is like a man's. He was often associated with music and fertility. And the Greeks believed Pan was born in this cave. And each spring, the people of Caesarea Philippi would engage in wicked deeds to entice Pan. And this would also be the place where Herod the Great built a temple honoring the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus. So when Jesus brought his disciples to this area... They must have been shocked because this place was like a red light district in their world. And devout Jews would have avoided any contact with this despicable place. It was a city of people eagerly knocking on the doors of hell. And it's here that Jesus asked his disciples the question. Who do you say that I am? He's surrounded by all this immorality. All this idolatry. He's at the gates of hell with 14 pagan temples behind him. And he looks at his disciples and he says, I know all this is around me, but who do you say that I am? The you here is plural. So the question was addressed to the entire group and immediately our minds rush to the answer. But when we do, we bypass the silence of the 11. How could you walk with Jesus all this time and not perceive who he was? At least the naysayers had developed some opinion, but his own followers can't even make up their minds about who he is. It's a terrible thing to lead lead people who do not respect who you are. And Jesus was asking them a question because he didn't need silent followers. He didn't need secret friends. He didn't need secret allies. He didn't need quiet witnesses. He needed somebody that would speak up in the midst of all this going on around them and say, yeah, all this is going on, but we know who Jesus is. We know who he is we know who he is he's able to change lives he's the messiah the savior we know who he is and then simon peter quickly and correctly answered you are the christ the son of the living god and jesus answered him blessed are you simon barjona for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven and that opened the door for an announcement from jesus he was standing in front of the largest rock formation in Israel with pagan statues and at least 14 temples in the background representing the kingdoms of men and active sin and the location of what they called the gates of hell representing demonic principalities and power. And Jesus stands there and he says, this is what I'm getting ready to do. Blessed thou, Simon Barzona, Matthew 16 and 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He said, I'm building something. So powerful, it's going to be able to stand in the middle of 2022 with everything going on around it, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No matter how much Satan attacks, the church will win and hell will lose. The offensive advance of the church exercising kingdom authority always overrides hell's attempts to stop it. He says, I'm changing your name from Simon to Peter. Simon means weak like sand, but Peter. I'm starting a church on the revelation of who I am. And it won't be able to be destroyed. And through my name, it will have the power to transform lives. And still today, the church was founded on a transformed life from Simon to Peter. And here we are in 2022. And the church is still transforming lives. Here we are today. Some of you walked in and used to be weak, but now you're strong. You used to be addicted, but now you're liberated. You Used to be bound, but now you're free. You used to be mad all the time, but now you've got. He's still transforming lives through the church. First 1 Corinthians 6, Apostle Paul lists the catalog of sin from drunkenness to fornication. And then he says these words, 1 Corinthians 6 and 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified on the revelation of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How many here today will testify that you found an altar of repentance in the church? How many will testify? If you was born in the church, I want you to stand. If you was baptized in the church and born again in the church, I want you to stand real quick. If you received the Holy Spirit, was baptized in the church, I want you to stand. Look around this building. You came too late to tell me the church isn't important. It's important. People are filled and born again and set free because of the church. Maybe seated. We've defined a church by having a steeple, cross, pews, or seats, a platform, and music. That's all great. But if it's not changing lives, it's not the church. The true church is about transforming people. Weak people becoming strong, the bound becoming liberated, those who are defeated becoming victorious, the prodigal finds a second chance in the church, and the lost find salvation. Look, look around today. Jesus took lost people and he built us together as lively stones and he made up his spiritual house. So I'm saying all this to tell somebody there is hope for your life today because there's a church. There's hope for your marriage, your family, your mistakes, your hurt, your weaknesses because there is a place. Where you can find strength, there is a church. Here's what I found I've discovered a pardon for my past at the church, power for my present at the church, and promises for my future. And that's why I believe in the church and why I attended. Because even if I wasn't a preacher, I would still take my wife and my children to church. It's not second in my life, it's priority because it's not my church, it's his church, it's his plan, it's his idea. Now listen, I know the church. Some of you are looking at me and say, "The church isn't a material building, you're right. Kudos. But it is a gathering. In fact, you may not know the original idea of the church. The Greek term is a secular word and has a governmental usage. The Greek word is ecclesia, and it simply means an assembly. And, orig- and originally it was an assembly of Greek citizens who would gather regularly to adjudicate certain cases in their community. So Jesus, when he spoke of building the church, he said, I'm building an assembly of people because he never wanted his followers to be isolated. And the pandemic has done a number on church attendance. The devil is an opportunist. And when he saw the opportunity to keep people from church. I'm not saying the devil caused the pandemic. I don't know. I'm not God. But I can tell you this, he's used the the pandemic to get people comfortable watching church in their pajamas and drinking coffee. And people have gotten comfortable with watching instead of participating and functioning as the church. Now listen, I'm thankful for technology. We're about to upgrade our live stream system. We're going to make it we're going to make it perfect because sometimes you got an ox in the ditch, you you got to miss church. I get all of that. Sometimes you sick, you can't make it. But can I tell you, watching online is not the same as being in the house. Somebody needs to testify. I've watched online, but it's not the same as gathering together with people that can lay their hands on you and pray for you, hug your neck, tell tell you they love you. Nothing like it. And right now, studies prove that an increase in technology in our society is causing people to be more isolated and lonely. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. We've got to engage in faith together. Because a disconnected Christian is a disobedient and unfruitful Christian. Proverbs 18 and 1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. He loses his mind. Listen, I know people stopped going to church because they got mad at somebody. And all of a sudden their theology started flipping. And they started going out of their mind believing any type of of antichrist information that they could get without even knowing still hiding behind her the hiding behind the facade of religion i'm still religious i just don't go to church but they don't believe fat meets greasy is that still a thing you saw that Pull that out boy reach, reach, reach way back in there i don't like fat or greasy Without a network of people around me, I'm easier prey to temptation. And the influence of the value systems around me in the world impact me more when I can't get to the house of God and realign my values. Dr. Jay Kessler gives us five reasons for going to church. Number one, it's the only organization that still deals with issues like salvation, death, judgment, grace, purpose, heaven and hell. We'll forget about heaven and hell if we don't hear a preach from the pulpit. Second thing, it adds value and dignity to human life. We live in a secular culture that contributes to our sense of inner worthlessness. The church counteracts this negative message by preaching God's love and acceptance. Some of us never felt love till we found a church that could wrap the arms around us. I don't care what you've done or where you've been. I love you. The third thing is it provides a moral and spiritual compass. Society has revised, resisted, and rejected absolutes, embracing what's relevant. But the church stands on the timeless bedrock of God's word. It realigns us to understand that if it's not in the word and about the word, then we need to leave it alone. Number four, it's where you find compassion, healing community. It's where you come and you feel you feel a a part of something because the believers are knit together, guaranteeing that we're all equal in the eyes of the father. Number five, unlike other institution, it has motivated the most lasting, unselfish, essential, courageous endeavors on earth. Things like missions and schools and hospitals and food pantries and rehab centers and orphanages. You know the church was a part of all of that. This is where I come to get realigned with my divine calling and my purpose. This is where I find accountability. This is where I find a word. This is where I find strength and support. That's why the enemy don't want you getting here because he knows if you could just get to the house, the church, and assemble together. You'll get out of whatever you've been in. Uh, The Bible says, Hebrews 10 and 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. The word forsaking is taken from three Greek words, which could be translated as out, down, and behind. It describes someone who feels left out, spiritually and emotionally down, and falling behind. Satan knows if he can separate us from other believers then guess what he'll do? He'll we'll feel left out, spiritually, emotionally down, and falling behind, and we'll miss out on what God has in store for us. Sure, we can stay home, read our Bible, tune in to Christian radio or television, but Jesus Christ built his church to gather together and to assemble. That way I can experience joy that I wouldn't experience on my own. I can receive encouragement that I wouldn't receive on my own. That's why, that's why I've come today to ring a bell. In Europe, in the 1800s, even as early as the 1600s, they had something called a belfry. They didn't have the money to build a big, a, a big sanctuary or tabernacle. So what they did is they took a belfry. They either built it on wheels or they built it up a little bit. It was a big bale. And on Sunday morning, somebody would go ring that bell. And when they rang that bell in those villages, it reminded everybody, today is Sunday, it's time to get up and it's time to assemble. And the Lord has sent me here today to ring the bell. I don't care what the enemy is saying, we are better when we assemble. I've come to ring it in your ears, ring it in your community. If you can find a church, you'll be better, stronger. Come to ring the bell today, I've got to ring the bell. Faithfulness is the greatest attribute of any believer. Because the enemy doesn't know what to do with someone he can't keep down. Look at someone and tell them, guess who's starting a church? Now, I've got to hit on this, and I promise you I won't, I won't preach too much longer. I don't know what too much longer is. Whatever it is, I will not do it. I want us to zero in on Jesus' ownership for just a moment. He said, I'm going to build my church. The church is not built on Simon Peter. It's built on the revelation of Jesus Christ. The foundation is Jesus Christ. That's why 1 Corinthians 3 says, For no one can lay any other foundation than the one we already have, which is Christ Jesus. Now, notice whom it belongs to. It's not the property of a pastor. I never understood churches that put the church in the name of their pastor. Oh, I'm just getting touchy. I feel it. I feel you. Never understood that. I never understood a church that was controlled by a couple families. Never understood. I never understood a church that was controlled by a board of directors. Now, advice, mighty men, all of that. I never understood it. Because it's not our church. It's not the church of a committee, a group, a bishop, a pope, or a denomination. Jesus said it's my church. Meaning he doesn't have to clear his decisions with anyone else. He can do what he wants because the church was his idea. And if you go to a church and it's about one man and one family get out of there as quick as you can because the kingdom of god should be made up of diversity it's not my church listen if we can't pay the bills here they close the doors we all right we'll just go find another church building and have church it's not it's not my church it's it's not about what i can do as a preacher it's his church He bought the church. He paid for it. I didn't pay for it. He paid for it. Paul says to the Ephesian elders in the 20th chapter of Acts, be sure that you feed and take care of God's church, purchased with his blood over whom the Holy Spirit has made you elders. Then he tells them in Ephesians 5 and 25 that this church was so important that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. It's his church. But in 2022, we've become so accustomed to an anthropocentric church. You know what that means? A man-centered church. We have taken his church and built it around what kind of church do we want. What kind of church am I looking for? What kind of activities do they have for my family? What type of music do they have? How's the campus? How's the preaching? To some, it's an institution. A long-standing institution filled with frowning people who gather and banter back and forth about things that have nothing to do with real life. To others, the church is nothing more than a social club, a social gathering where everybody goes a few times in their life, where they're hatched, matched, and dispatched, and that's about it to some people. (laughs) Because that's how we do church in this country. We are anthropocentric. Back in 1928, Evelyn Underhill wrote this about to the church in England. I'm going to share one sentence. We are drifting toward a religion which keeps its eye on humanity rather than on deity. We are so used to evaluating songs, worship leaders, and sermons that we've forgotten who's evaluating us. James Kennedy said, "Most people think about the church as a drama, with the minister as the chief actor, God as the prompter, and the congregation as the critic." When what, what it actually is, what is actually the case, is the congregation is the chief actor, the minister is the prompter, and God is the critic. Listen, He's the one that's doing the evaluating. And his opinion should matter. Do we represent the church that Christ came to build? Listen, I'm preaching to myself today. I'm preaching to myself because I feel so burdened to produce. Hours of studying. I don't need, uh, you don't have to pin a rose on my nose. But it took me 25 hours to build this message. I spend hours because I know how important it is. And I feel like I've got to produce, I've got to build a church when I should be asking the question. Is Christ pleased with the way I preach? Am I building his church? Could Jesus be a member of the river? Would he even recognize this as his church if he walked in those doors and showed up today? Could he even go to church here because we're still preaching the same thing they preached when he started his church? Now I've said all this to lay the foundation for what Luke was writing about in Acts. This is how he begins. The former treaties that I wrote to you, O Theophilus, of all Jesus began both to do and teach until the day he was taken up. In other words, Theophilus, when I wrote the gospel of Luke, I was writing to you about what Jesus started. Now I'm writing to you about what Jesus continues to do and teach through us. It's his gospel. Now if you go read the gospel of Luke, you're going to find something very intriguing. He had to do a lot of research He interviewed people. He checked their stories because he wanted to tell about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You see, Luke wasn't a witness to the life of Christ like Matthew, Mark, and John. But he wanted to give an accurate description of what Christ did for his friend, Theophilus. So the book of Acts is Luke's second book. In Acts, Luke intended to tell us how Jesus was going to accomplish his goal of saving the lost and building the church. And of course, the question is how? I could tell you how. He was going to empower his believers to be an extension of him. He said, I've got to go because when I go, I'm going to leave you my power to be a witness. But they couldn't accomplish it without the power. He said, you've got to go to Jerusalem, wait on the promise, Acts 1 and 8. When the promise shows up, you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses for me. Jesus knew. Why would Jesus tell them, do not do anything until you go to Jerusalem and wait for the power? Why would he tell them that? Why wouldn't Jesus just say, go start a church? He couldn't, because to be honest, the Lord's followers were a ragtag band of men and women from dysfunctional families, questionable pasts, and lives full of issues. And when the going got tough, you know what they did? Ran and hid. He was in trouble if he left his church just to them. So he tells them, he said, don't you leave that upper room. He was saying, I've seen what you can do on your own, and my church cannot go on without my spirit. It's got to have my spirit. Now let me let me take you back real quick to Matthew 16. Simon Peter upon this rock. I'll build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But you got to go to verse 18 or 19. I'm sorry to to hear the rest of it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Who's given the keys to the kingdom? simon peter why was simon peter given the keys to the kingdom because of a revelation of who jesus christ was however simon peter failed by denying he was even with christ so in john 21 after the death and resurrection of jesus the disciples went fishing them jokers there man they're always going fishing i don't fish but i need to become a modern day disciple Sounds much much better being out on the water than sitting up in an office getting ready for Sunday. I'm about to become a fisherman. But Scotty, we're going next week. So they went fishing. And they believed that they went fishing in the same area, the very same spot where Peter and several other disciples were first commissioned by the Lord to become fishers of men in Matthew 4. They fished all night. Peter and several other disciples had caught nothing. How could experienced fishermen catch nothing? Some of you are saying it happens all the time. Hunter Hernandez will tell you how to do that. Just get with him and see. I'm just joking. And at dawn, Jesus, whose identity remained hidden from the disciples, temporarily asked if they had caught any fish. And after the disciples said no, Jesus, still unrecognizable, told them, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, there were so many fish Brother Michael ain't never caught a fish in this net, this is his net. And when they did, there were so many fish in the net the second time that they could barely pull it up. Now watch this. The difference between success and failure, the width of that boat, they believe, was four feet. The difference between success and failure was only four feet away. If they stop fishing, they never catch those fish. Some of you need to understand you're closer to success than what you think you are. And the enemy has said, you've tried and you've called nothing. You've tried to do right and you've called nothing. But I've come here with a prophetic word. You're four feet away from God doing something supernatural and powerful in your life. You're closer than what you could ever imagine. Don't give up fishing. You're four feet (laughs) away. Describing this great catch in the TLV, a Messianic Jewish translation of the Hebrew Bible, it says there was a hundred And 53 fish. What is this detail meant to communicate to us? Remember, this is right where the place that Jesus first called Peter and Andrew, his brother, to be his disciples saying, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And according to one theologian, there were 150 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. (laughs) He was telling Simon Peter. Peter. Don't forget what I called you to do. I've given you a net, and I've given you the keys. I want you to go catch every type of person that you can catch. Don't single them out. Don't isolate them. If there was 153 species of fish in Galilee, then he was saying, catch everybody. Throw it out there and pull them in. Uh, listen, I'm not going to be mean today. Musicians, you can get ready. Just come up here. Don't play yet. I'm not going to be mean today. But I know some places. Let me say, I think there are some places that call themselves a church that decide what kind of fish they want in the building. Mm-hmm. Send me everybody. And I'm going to pray a prayer at the end of this service, and God's going to open up the windows of heaven and pour out his blessings. But I've come to tell the Lord, I'm throwing the net. I don't care what I catch. Bring them on in. Because when they get in, I've got the keys to the kingdom. I've got the way out of their condition. I'm not worried about just catching certain type of fish that are praying and praying. Give me every <laughs> type of fish. Yeah. 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 So watch this. Jesus ascends, and Simon Peter heads to that upper room. Waiting to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus breathed on them in that room behind closed doors. An anticipatory act. Saying, watch what's getting ready to happen. Acts 2, 1 through 6. And when the day of Pentecost arrived. They were all together. The first outpouring happened at a gathering. The last outpouring is going to happen at a gathering. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a. A mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's the church he came to build. I think Jesus would be shocked to go to a church that doesn't speak in tongues. Why? Because that's what he's building right here in the upper room. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. We've never seen anything like this. What's going on? And these men are walking around like, like, like they're drunk in the upper room and they're speaking in this language. They're drunk. No, they're not drunk. And Simon Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted his voice and said, You men, wait a minute. Who stood up? Simon Peter, old jellyback. Scared to death. The one who shrunk into the crowd, warmed himself by the fire of the enemy. And when they asked him, do you know Jesus? He said, no. No, I don't know him. That's what he (laughs) said. What happened to old jellyback? Simon Peter, I can tell you what happened. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was no longer operating in his agenda. The Holy Spirit was working through him. Yeah. The same spirit that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead is now operating in Simon Peter, and there's a boldness there. He's full of the Holy Ghost. He's got a net in one hand. He's got keys in the other. He throws the net out. He pulls in 3,000 people, and they say, what do, we do? what do we need to do to be saved? Acts 2.38, and Peter said to them, you've got to repent. Baptize everyone in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verses 41 through 47. So those who received this word, his word, were baptized. And they were added to the day. They were added that day about 3,000 souls to the church. Because Simon Peter had the keys to the kingdom. And now he gives the keys to 3,000 souls. And watch what happened in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. And the fellowship to the breaking of bread. And the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. And had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings. And distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day attending the temple they never stopped going to church the church still went to church and they broke bread in their homes and they they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising god and having favor with all people And the lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved and then you go to acts 5 and 12 now now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they all what They gathered together. You can't tell me that it's not important to gather and assemble in Solomon's portico. Watch verse 14 through 16. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them and the people also gathered from the towns around jerusalem bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed verse 42 and every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the christ is jesus Acts 6 and 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Can I tell you, guess who's starting a church? And then you go to Acts chapter 10, there's a man, a devout man by the name of Cornelius. He, he wants more, he gives alms, he's faithful, but there's more for him. And God, God tells him, I've got a man that's got the keys, and he's going to give you the keys. And, and that angel gives Simon Peter a vision. Of a sheet coming down with every unclean animal. Comes down, goes up, comes down, goes up. Rise and eat. Simon Peter said, I'm not going to eat. I'm not eating any unclean thing. Holy Spirit said, Don't call unclean what I've made clean. Yeah. And they showed up and they take Simon Peter to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius says, I'm a faithful man. I do go to the temple. I give alms. But Simon Peter said, have you heard about this church that Christ showed up to be And Simon Peter told him about baptism in Jesus' name and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And he converted. The conversion of the Gentiles started at that moment. Because one man said he's starting a church. And I want to be a part of the church. Yeah. You can start. Very softly church he started was full of his power it endured persecution hardship and the predictions of its demise from Bulkman to Barnet, it's not going to last what they said it's going away from Dennett to Dawkins it's not going to last Harris who wrote the end of faith is near all churches are equally demented in their belief and in 1776 David Hume the skeptic made a prediction he said I see the twilight of Christianity 1776, I see the twilight of Christianity. The old boy couldn't tell the difference between the sunset and the sunrise because the church was just underway and it spread. And now here we are in 2022 and everything seems to be going on around us. Listen, I'm going to be honest. I feel like I'm at the gates of hell. Have you looked around, been on the news? That's why I'm not. We had cupcakes on a Wednesday night just, just to say we love you. But if I got to have a gimmick to get people to church, like an ice cream social, I heard of one church, they put $5 on the random chairs in the church to get people there. Actually, look under your chair right now. Listen, if we're his church, we don't need a gimmick. Because the same power that empowered the church in Acts to turn the world upside down resides here. What I can tell you you want deliverance? You're at the right place. You need healing in your body? You're at the right place. You need to be set free? You're at the right place. You need to be loved on? You're at the right place. Because Jesus is starting church. Let's stand. We have a promise that we can stand at the gates of hell. My friends ask me, how in the world have y'all grown during a pandemic? How are y'all doing an expansion, adding parking? How are y'all doing that? I don't know. He wants me to give him a one, two, three answer. I don't know. It's not my church. To be honest, I feel like we've done the same thing we've always done. But I can tell you there's one thing we've done different. Stand up, Brother Ralph. Come here, come on up. I can tell you one thing we've done different. Let me help you up these stairs, young man. A man showed up with a bird and a fish. And he showed up with keys to the kingdom. And on Thursday night, there's a refugee center here at the river that says, hey, we got a net and we got keys. Bring all the broken. Bring in all the hurting. We're going to catch any type of fish that we can catch. Stay right there, brother. So we stand at the gates of hell with the promise that the church will prevail. And the enemy can do whatever he wants to do, but I've come to tell him the church will remain I had somebody text me. They said, Pastor, you worried about growing so much that you're going to have dissension in the church? You always have dissension. You deal with 400 people, you deal with dissension. But I've learned something. Three things you do with dissension and division. Number one, you never bring gasoline to drama. Let it go out. The second thing is Matthew 18. If you got conflict with somebody, don't bring it to me unless they won't listen to you. Go to them. I'm not a referee. I'm a pastor. Now, if I need to be a witness, I'll be that. I'll go with you if they won't listen. The third thing is, when you get here, we're not going to talk about drama. We're going to talk about the one that can take chains off people's lives. We're going to talk about the one that came to build a church. We're going to talk about the one that can still love and heal in men. So here it is. This was my prayer this week. And that's why I got you up here, Brother Ralph, because when I pray this, I just believe. I believe something's getting ready to release in this place. God, send us more messy people. God, send us the drug addicted. God, send us the abused. Send us the people that are cast out by society because they don't know what to do with themselves and they can't fix themselves. Send them here because there's somebody that started a church. And at this church, the spirit of the Lord is here. And God, there's a body of believers that love people come on because let's be honest the truth is we're all broken the truth is we all needed salvation and restoration the truth is we're here today because somebody took a net somebody took keys and they unlocked the kingdom to us brother Ralph see there's three keys how am I gonna get better we're gonna find repentance Then what are we going to do? We're going to baptize you in the name that's above every other name, the name of Jesus Christ. Then what else are we going to do? You're going to get filled with the Holy Spirit. And the same power that was in Jesus Christ when he walked out of a tomb is now going to abide in you. And you're going to be more than a conqueror. You're going to be an overcomer. You're going to have a net. Guess who's starting the church? Stay right there. So this is what I want us to do. If you want to be a part of the church, that he came to start. And you want to make a difference in this world. There are some here today that if I told you to raise your hand, if you're weak spiritually, if you're battling, you would raise your hand. I don't want you to. You're in the right place today because there's a church body. So this is what I want us to do. We're going to come to this front as a church family, but I only want you coming to this front if you're going to buy into the church that christ came to be on. not josh payne's church not ralph stewart's church not daryl carbo's church not michael nutter's church it's got to be his uh church We're going down to the-